0: As we were descending the mountain we had a we had an anchor the the anchor that we were using to abseil or repel failed he didn't but i do remember one of the other people not someone who was working at the hospital but must have been a volunteer in some other aspect of the of the tibetan community he he decided to use those that that period of time with the Dalai lama to ask about the path to enlightenment and how and how you know how does it work and i thought Oh, I just remember laughing at the time, thinking, "Look, mate, he's he's not going to cover this for you in half an hour." <laughs> That's
1: right.
2: That's, so he's dedicated his whole life to Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> is there
1: is there one word you can tell me? That's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating upon an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride right along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe
2: as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today's episode is not about COVID-19. Instead, we're going to try and give you all a little break and get you as far away from this as we possibly and virtually can. For that, we're heading to Queensland, Australia, to meet Dr. Andrew Peacock, an emergency physician, award-winning photographer, an accomplished climber, and an expedition guide for Lindblad Expeditions, a travel company contracted with National Geographic. This conversation takes us everywhere from Antarctica to Nepal, aboard a Russian icebreaker ship, technical climbing in New Zealand, and even a private audience with the Dalai Lama. We'll learn how a lucky break in Antarctica sparked a side career for Andrew in photography. Best of all, we'll learn how a busy ER physician has made this whole life possible, while we're literally setting a new standard for work-life balance. This was simply... Just an awesome episode. We had a blast doing it. I think you're going to have a blast listening. So with that said, let's get started. Andrew, welcome to the show. I can't even tell you how excited we are to have you uh, because it's a different time right now. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're counting on you, Andrew. You got to take us out on some adventures here today and kind of brighten our spirits a little bit.
0: Oh, that sounds good. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to, uh, to be talking with you this morning in my time.
2: That's right. So you're in Friday. We're still in Thursday here. So morning for you, evening for us, but uh, we're going to have some fun here. Andrew, as, man, there's a lot of things we're going to go into today, but just to start us out here, we talked a little bit beforehand, but um, you and your family, your community, how are you guys doing right now? I know uh, Australia's been through a lot right now with the wildfires and how is COVID-19 affecting things there in your neck of the woods?
0: Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, there's no doubt we're all in this together. It's a worldwide issue, and Australia's not spared from that uh, in any way. I live in a community that's uh, that's at the beach in Queensland. Um, people are used to being outdoors and getting their, their kind of endorphin fix of exercise, and many of us are still managing to do that early in the morning and keeping our uh, physical distance as requested. But uh, there are a number of businesses closed. Uh, people are lining up at the unemployment. Uh, centers in the same way that they're doing elsewhere in the world. It's a very big deal what's going on. And um, it's a day by day thing. You know, clearly we're getting a lot of stuff in the media from our, uh, our politicians, state-based and federal based. Um, We're taking that advice and, and uh, I feel lucky as a doctor that I can contribute in some way. So I'll be going to work uh, as usual in the emergency room and um, my wife's unemployed. She's a massage therapist. Uh, Obviously that's an activity that's that's clearly been shut down. Um, so one of my challenges is to keep her busy. She doesn't like stopping still.
2: So, you know, we, all, we all
0: have our little, we all have our little challenges to face, but, um, well, she so
2: can practice on you at least, you know, keep her skills. Uh, up. Yeah. Yeah. That's something
0: I've suggested. I did. I did actually run that by her yesterday. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, how's your hospital doing right now? Uh,
0: I work in a private hospital, um, uh, in the emergency room in Brisbane. And at the moment we don't have any positive cases in terms of the viral illness that we're all concerned about, um, so we've been able to you know institute preparation type um, processes, and that's what it's all about. It's all about preparation, education for people in terms of personal protective equipment, um, and just you know ramping things up and getting in a position where we uh, as a private facility can can help in terms of what's going on in the public hospital system, which is where the brunt of the of the illness front is happening right. at the moment in Australia.
1: Yeah, before we get into the uh, the the fun stuff and everything, a question I ask of uh, all healthcare providers: What is what about this um, the pandemic and everything is going to stick in terms of changes in medical care? Is do you see anything that's that's being done differently or any approach differently? The universal precautions, of course, but what what other lessons can we maybe take out to make um, to make this stronger for the next one and the one after that?
0: Yeah, look, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure how well placed I am to answer that in terms of the work that I do uh, at an emergency room level. As yet, I can't see too much different in the way that I would practice or that others that I work with would. Um, uh, you know, clearly the the issue really seems to be primarily a capacity issue, right? I mean, you know, if we had unlimited ICU doctors, unlimited yeah. ICU beds, because it's all about supportive treatment to to allow ones hopefully good immune system to defeat this thing, then we would all be thinking, well, you know, we can ride it out, but that's not the case. So some capacity questions, um, but that's limited in terms of infrastructure and space within hospitals. I, I think I'm thinking a little bit more in terms of, uh, you know, population and public health. People cannot go through this without being so much more aware of uh, transmission issues with regards to all viral illnesses, I mean. right. right. I don't know. I'm sure many people listening have, uh, you know, been a bit unhappy that day that someone with the flu or a cold or other illnesses have turned up to work. And I don't do that. And I don't think anyone should be doing that ever. Uh, but I mean, that's a small thing in, in relation to what we're talking about, but th- there's going to be a public perception change of, about the nature of illness and how it gets transmitted. And, and
2: that will be something that comes out of this. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I Keith, I've been talking about that all week. Well, so it- I don't know how this is going to change your plans I was looking on National Geographic's website to see some of the upcoming expeditions you have scheduled but uh, um, have they changed any of that yet or uh, that's kind of still up in the air
0: yeah so just, you know just to be clear my, my the company that I do a lot of contract work for currently as a photographer is Lindblad expeditions and and they have gotcha. a co- they have a co-branding situation with National Geographic so by no means should I be misrepresented as a National Geographic photographer which is something that can you know sometimes blur the lines a little bit when people describe oh, what yeah, I do sure. so, so uh, yeah Limblad Expeditions um, very good company I've been working for for a little while uh, and I was looking forward to um, a significant number of very interesting exciting trips on their small expedition-based ships over this coming year I was heading to Svalbard quite soon uh, on one of the, the or on their new ship actually called the Endurance and then Um, I was doing some expedition leading work in Iceland and Southeast Alaska, and then uh, a a trip as a photography instructor across the Northeast Passage from Nome in Alaska to Tromsø in Norway. So these were all things I was very much looking forward to, as many people have been looking forward to overseas journeys and other travel that they do. Uh, All of that's on hold. I think, in my mind, um, to be quite blunt, I don't think you can get a more um, iconic image or symbol of this crisis than a ship, you know, an expedition yeah, an ship okay. or a cruise ship. I mean, the, the the ships that I work on are 100 to 150 people. We're talking about a ship that's being used as a platform to explore and get people off the ship, uh, onto land or onto Zodiacs or into kayaks to explore. So... It, it's diametrically opposite to the concept of being on a three thousand person cruise ship, where it's all about you know going to the casino or lying by the pool or whatever. That's that's not at all what I'm interested in, not, and it's not what we do as a company. Um, but I think you know, unfortunately, all ships are going to be to some degree tarred with the same brush. And this is this is adep- look, it's devastating for so many people, but this particular industry. Um, you know, that I've been excited about uh, getting involved with is is going to take a very big hit. There's no question. So I think at the moment, um, yeah, you know, for someone like myself, uh, I work as a doctor. I work as a photographer. My photography work is based on expedition ships primarily. Um, that's not going to happen for the foreseeable future. So I feel also very lucky that I can continue to contribute uh, doing the thing that I've done since I was 23 years old, which is work as a doctor.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, I, got, I actually want to have some more questions about these ships, but we'll come to mm-hmm. that in a little bit. Let's let's go back okay. to the beginning here because, obviously, you started out on a pretty normal path. You know, you I don't know what it is in Australia. Maybe you have something equivalent to the MCATs. You, you know, applied for medical school. You had certain aspirations of, you know, either emergency medicine or something else. But take us back there to that path, and then, you know, we'll kind of get into what caused you to branch off a little bit not all the way, but a little bit.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, gosh, uh, to, to really go back, I, I was, I started medical school when I was 16 years old. I mean, that's that's crazy, right? Um, no
2: kidding. Uh, so, Is that it, the way it is in it, Australia, where you well, go straight it, in, you know, without taking like four year undergraduates requirement?
0: It was at that time. It's much, much less there. There's a different sort of program these days in terms of a bit more you, a bit more like the US-based system where you, uh, where you do do some sort of an undergraduate degree. But I ended up a year ahead at high school. Um, I was interested in biology, I'm particularly interested in exercise physiology, actually, and um, as an athlete. And my father was a, a thoracic surgeon, so just lung surgery, no cardiac surgery. Um, my mum was originally a nurse. I, I, I kind of joke and say, you know, if someone had come to me at high school as a career counsellor, which we did not have career counsellors, but if someone had said, hey, what about architecture? What do you think about that? I, I was naive enough at that time to say, oh, what's, what's architecture? You know, I, I just, all I knew about was, was, um, was training for kayaking and swimming. Um, so being an athlete, interested in exercise, interested in biology, and my parents had a medical background. So what do you do when you top the high school for your grades, which I did? you go to medical school.
2: Yeah, um, let me double click on that, that was 16, you said, right? Because that's yeah. early in anybody's book, I, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy.
0: Um, so yeah, so I did my six years of medical school. I had a year off where I was uh, representing Australia in the in the junior kayaking team. So, And this is an interesting point. Um, I went overseas, so I had that year off medical school and I went overseas to compete. Um, and we were based in Germany. Uh, you know, I was with a squad of other athletes uh, and on our rest days, everybody else was kind of lying around, you know, um, resting as you're supposed to do. And I was jump, I was jumping on the train at the at the central train station of the town we were staying in, and heading out to the nearest little German villages I could find to walk around and take pictures. Um, and the others thought I was stupid, which, which I guess from a kind of hey, I'm supposed to be over here competing and doing my best as an athlete, maybe I was a bit you know negligent in that sense but but basically for me i was exploring and i was and i was enjoying the fact that i was in this completely unique part of the world i had time to myself and i had this um slr camera that i bought you know a film camera obviously and um and i was just walking around taking photos not not with any intent and not with any sort of thinking that i was an artist or that um, i was even telling a story i just felt that i needed to take a picture of stuff
2: so yeah, well, yeah. For, a little foreshadowing of what's coming though i mean yeah really yeah i think a so. passing interest.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I did that. Um, anyway, so I had my year off and then I, I finished medical school. Um, and a very significant thing for me was that in my last year of medical school, uh, as part of my elective or externship, perhaps mm-hmm. is a more common term, um, I, was, I continued to be interested in, in uh, exercise related things. And I was um, keen to go to San Francisco uh, and spend some time with the sports doctors there. So, a couple of things happened. First, prior to going to San Francisco, I went to Santa Barbara. Um, I knew uh, I had a friend who was involved in general surgery the program uh, there in California. and i went I went to Santa Barbara and spent three weeks um, and subsequent to that, the Chief of Surgery said to me, "Look, if you wanted to come back uh, uh, you know to to be a resident in general surgery here, we would hold a position for you outside of the match, which you know was an opportunity that that I subsequently took up uh, a few hmm. years later. And then uh, after being a few weeks in Santa Barbara I went to San Francisco and and uh, the the sports doctors there looked after the ballet um, I knew nothing about about ballet they arranged for me to go and watch one of the rehearsals and at that rehearsal I met my future wife ah, so hey um, how about
1: that perfect yeah, yeah
0: she, was, she was a principal ballerina at San Francisco ballet um, and we, we you know we simply met at that time and we, we just stayed in touch we didn't it wasn't that wasn't the beginning of our relationship. It was the beginning of our connection, and we subsequently met up again and spent time together. And and she now lives with me. And you boned and
2: up on ballet a little bit, so you know what you're talking about. And
0: I had to had to go to a few rehearsals <laughs> and, and <you> know, <laughs> make excuses as to why I had to keep going back to the rehearsal right. those particular
1: <laughs>
0: So it was a pretty, you know, that was a pretty significant time um, for sure. And then and I did go back and I spent a year working uh, as a I did my internship in Australia. Then I. I, I um, headed to Santa Barbara. I did a year of general surgery training. It was a fantastic year. Uh, I really enjoyed it, but I, but something didn't quite gel with me. I, I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't project myself forward into thinking that this is exactly what I wanted to do or that I, yeah, something just didn't quite gel. I, I don't think I ever really knew what it was. I, at the end of that year of surgery, I didn't Decide to, I was offered to continue in the program instead of just doing a year, you know, continue through the five years. Right. Um, I decided not to. And exactly around that time, I did a weekend rock climbing course uh, at UCSB in Santa Barbara. And that was the beginning of the end of a traditional medical career for me. Hmm. because This was an activity that suddenly grabbed me and gave me a purpose to explore further and to learn about the mountains and to get into the Sierras. Um, and to challenge myself physically, yes, but much more mentally, you know, in terms of heading into the mountains and being self-sufficient and independent and finding partners with whom you need to trust and develop a relationship with, and yeah. So for whatever reason, that just then became everything that I thought about, and I stopped working and started travelling around the States climbing, uh, and then uh, did go back to Australia where I sort of met a whole new community of people, you know, prior to leaving Australia to go to the States, I was not much of an outdoors person. Yes, I was an athlete, but I hadn't, I wasn't exploring the outdoors. And suddenly I was meeting all these people that had this common purpose or common love of being outdoors and climbing. And and that was um, a really cool thing for me. And I started looking for ways to uh, combine medicine with being outdoors but I guess that's probably the simplest way of putting it and and I, I certainly got when I came back to Australia I started doing a lot of locum work in emergency uh, rooms and also in regional and remote areas doing fly doc, flying doctor service work uh, working on remote aboriginal communities and doing lots of family practice
2: work in Australia as well yeah, So I, was I mean, that's a huge component of the health system in Australia isn't it I mean it's everything yeah. so spread out and, and probably not unlike Alaska in the U.S. But you know I mean you got to get on a plane to go anywhere. It's like you're a commuting vehicle. That's yeah, great. that's right.
0: Yeah. And and doing all that kind of thing gives you a great base for uh well, it gives you a great a good clinical base. It's true. But I think, you know, a bit I mean, particularly for someone who started medical school and even being doc, a doctor as young as I did. I mean, you know, I was pretty naive to the whole world of just interpersonal relationships and understanding people. And that's so much about what medicine is about, and communication is so much about so is, is such an important part of what medicine's about. So I was learning. All of that, really, um, and it gave me a great base for, I think, having a pragmatic approach to the way that I that I the way that I would continue to work, and this this sort of dovetails into becoming an expedition doctor. Um, and the first thing that I did uh, was volunteer as a doctor working in Nepal and in India. In this is way back in nineteen ninety six, so mm-hmm. I went overseas to spend time um, working for the Tibetan government in exile in Dharamsala in northern India and we there was a little western run western there was a tibetan hospital but then across the road was a was a western style hospital that the tibetan government was running and and i was there with a few other western doctors volunteering and i opened up my eyes to a world that i really hadn't seen before in terms of lots of morbidity with people with tuberculosis typhoid fever all sorts of significant illnesses and um we so worked. this was the
2: Tibetan government in exile, or was this like an NGO Correct. that yeah. you were working with, or?
0: No, I was working directly for the Tibetan government in exile. They they um, they run a hospital there, and so they uh, I forget how I found out about it, but the, yeah. some somewhere somewhere along the line I was aware of this need and and volunteered to go, and of course it was it was you know close to the mountains of northern India, so it, that was just that's all I needed to know. But yeah. it, that's often yeah. the way i made it. I've yeah. often made decisions on the basis of just give me a key little bit of information that tells me how the outside world can interact with where, what, with where and with where I will be, and I'll make everything else work. And that's you, what I
1: did. You realize every doctor who's listening to that right now is thinking, if I were giving that branching point now, knowing what I know, would I have gone to um, to Nepal in the mountains, or would I have stayed and and done my <laughs> residency? And mm. I tell you, I'm thinking that right now. I'm thinking, what if, I, what if, what if I'd found that opportunity and I'd followed um, your pathway? What a yeah! Just a wait till they great... find out
2: who you got to meet over there too. We're getting to uh, that. Yeah, what a,
1: what a, what a, what a But re, even regardless, what a great, brave choice and and uh, amazing. So anyway, yeah, by I the think... way, Andrew,
2: did you get any friction from your folks? I mean, particularly your dad being a surgeon, or
1: <laughs> uh, that's
0: a really good question. Um, Kevin, okay, uh, want to answer? No big deal. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, The simple answer is no to that. But the second part of that would be I didn't ask him. Um, <laughs> you know, because because it wasn't it wasn't. But but that's a permission that 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 not permission. That that's just the nature of our relationship. It was, he wasn't someone that that I had to bounce stuff off. Particularly, um, that in fact that was never part of me growing up with him in terms of bouncing stuff off. It was like this is what you'll do. This is expected. But as soon as I moved away. Uh, you know from the parental environment then i you know clearly i was just making decisions independently i think bit by bit my both my my parents became aware that wow, this is kind of this is a different path than andrew's going down and i've never felt yeah, we're kind of
2: jealous actually yeah, <laughs> yeah right. well, i never felt yeah. much
0: <laughs> other than, than they, that they, they were always just super interested in what i was doing so yeah. what, you know whatever worked worked um and there was certainly no friction as part of it. Uh, well, maybe apart from when I did come back from that voluntary time in India and Nepal, with without a cent to my name, and and kind of gently, you know, ask for a loan <laughs> at 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 five percent. I think that was the interest rate that it was that I had to pay back, which seemed fair <laughs> enough at the time.
2: <laughs> sure, sure. I, I thought you said you said scent to your name, not scent to your name. You had plenty of ascents. I mean,
0: um, yeah, I've uh, <laughs> managed to climb a few things by then. So certainly in Nepal, Nepal was you know really Nepal was was wonderful to be uh, in this little town called Menang, which is which is uh, a, a fairly high up on the Annapurna circuit. You know, very very commonly trekked or hiked um, circuit that that many people aim to do when they're in Nepal. And this was again in 1996 uh sabina was able to come with me actually so uh, you know, sabina and i had spent a bit more time together by then and and um she actually got time off from from san francisco ballet she went to the director and said amazing and you know she's a principal dance. she was a principal dancer there so this was very unusual for for a principal dancer to say hey or to, to be given time off or to request time off to to say look i want to follow this Australian guy to the mountains of Nepal and spend three months at, at <laughs> um, you know, 13,000 feet. Um, and the director, to his credit, said, you, you might never, you, these are the sort of opportunities that don't come along, and, and you should take this opportunity, and there'll be a position for you when you come back. Maybe so they that, thought that
2: you were was... a wealthy doctor who's going to be a donor to the ballet, so. You know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of they them. Were, so. <laughs> they were wrong about that. Uh, so how, how many so, yeah, years yeah, were you wrong. in uh, Nepal then?
0: Oh, look, just, just there for three months, um, we did a lot of, we did, we worked at a small, worked at a small clinic, um, primarily um, that, that was, it's with the Himalayan Rescue Association, which is still an association that, that exists and still has voluntary Western doctors go to the clinics in the mountains. Um, you're there because you're on a trekking circuit and, and um, trekkers historically can get unwell because of altitude illness. So this, sure. that's where I, that's where I learned about altitude illness and where I gave lectures every day on altitude illness prevention to the trekkers um as well as looking after the local people um you know, which was widely ranging i mean i was you know i was asked to come and look at a horse that had been gored by a yak and it turns out the horse was owned by the head llama of the village so it's you know it's a very auspicious thing to be asked by the llama to come and look after their horse I little did they know i had no clue what i was doing <laughs> <at all. laughs> And you know, and I was doing dentistry. I spent two hours with the uh, with the U.S. Embassy's dentist in Kathmandu, who explained, okay, this is how you take teeth out. This is how you do a dental block. Um, that's pretty much all you're going to need to know because you're going to you're going to be seeing people with rotten teeth that you can't do much more than to take out, uh, you know, to make sure that they don't get infected. And that's and that's something that I did for the first time ever. So um, it was it was a you know, a real sort of, not, I was going to say proving ground, it's not a proving ground, but at just a place where you kind of have to just roll with it and go, well, this isn't what I was trained to do, but if I can do no harm and make sure that I'm doing the right thing, then, uh, you know, then I'm better than nobody in this environment. And that's kind of how I approached it.
2: Yeah. And um, I think they appreciated it. And I just got to jump through this because this, this is uh, pretty amazing. You got a private audience with somebody. Uh, tell us about this. Uh, how did this happen?
0: And India, um, as part and of this, is later yeah. after
2: after this, or when you met? No, the Dalai same Lama? time.
0: So, okay. in, in that period of time, when I, when I was a volunteer there, uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, we we were able. Uh, there were a few volunteers, obviously, in in the village of Dharamsala, and it, we were granted a private audience with His Holiness. And um, the staff at the hospital were beside themselves with pride for the fact that the volunteers there, even even though they themselves were not. You know, these were Tibetans who had many of whom had made difficult journeys to come from Tibet. Um, uh, you know, because of Chinese oppression there, which is which is obviously another story. But um, yeah, they were beside themselves with pride that I that I, as one of the volunteers, was going to have this this um, audience with the Dalai Lama, and it was it was very special, but at the same time, very kind of I guess. Oh, normal in that in that there wasn't any great fanfare we we, you know the the three there were four of us we we turned up at the appointed time um we we all got dressed up in whatever vague okay clothes that we happened to have there in the middle of monsoon in india and were you told
2: about this was it so uh one of his staff come and say this is happening at this point or i think one of the hospitals
0: maybe the director of the hospital who was who was a tibetan maybe said you know you've been granted an audience and that you know so be ready and and off we went, and we spent maybe half an hour with him. I think something like that. Very generous, very very affable, uh, smiling, and interested. You know, each one of us that was there, he asked us questions. And um, when he heard he, I was from Australia, he he commented about the fact that he was going to Australia quite soon um, to give some blessings and 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 to do other things. And and somehow we ended up talking about the fact that, or he, I'm sure he mentioned it that that he was surprised that Australia eats our national animal talking about the kangaroo and somehow we'd heard about the fact that we that we don't mind a bit of brew on the barbecue uh which is true But it's not a you wouldn't find kangaroo being eaten frequently on the plates of certainly not city dwellers in australia very often anyway that's what we ended up talking about and i
2: was explaining that so you you sat down uh, the dalai lama and talked about barbecue that's (laughs) talk about a uh, cocktail party topic here you know (laughs) 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 exactly So it's about 30 minutes and uh, yeah, whether not, well, he's probably just a pretty regular guy overall, huh? I mean, just conversationally. I think he's a very impressive guy. Very,
0: uh, I mean, you know, the story of, of his escape from Tibet at such a young age and, and yeah. taking on the, the, taking on his shoulders, the burden of the expectations of a large group of, of people for whom, you know, their world was turned upside down and their culture has been destroyed. And, um, and he can, has, from my from my simple perspective, you know I'm I'm no scholar of of the Dalai Lama and 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 what he's been up to over the past number of years, but yeah, just um, a, st- a real story of oppression of a, of a of a of an incredible culture and a group of people, and he and he became a figurehead that then was expected to step up to the world stage. That, that's a pretty difficult thing to have shouldered. and he's done that really really well,
2: I think. Did you give you any advice, any passing thoughts, something stuck in your <laughs> head, or?
0: He didn't, but I do remember one of the other people—not someone who was working at the hospital, but must have been a volunteer in some other aspect of the of the Tibetan community. He he decided to use that that period of time with the Dalai Lama to ask about the path to enlightenment and how and how how does it work? And I thought. Oh I, don't know. I just remember laughing at the time thinking, look, mate, he's he's not gonna cover this for you in half an hour. <laughs> that's he- right.
2: So that's, that's he's <laughs> dedicated his whole life exactly? to <laughs> yeah. is
1: there is there one word you can tell me? That's right. <laughs> Funny.
2: Anyway, Amazing. yeah, it reminds me of um, last year we had uh, Debbie Shetty, who's a cardiac surgeon in India, and he was Mother Teresa's uh, surgeon and served as her personal oh, okay. physician for a year and yeah um you know it, it, he wasn't even told where he was going when they put him in the car and said you're going to go see this patient and then she ended up you know in the hospital in recovery going on rounds with him to go see other patients you know this is the <laughs> kind of person she was and yeah. I, I tried to ask him the same thing you know these kinds of people like whether Teresa or the dalai lama they're kind of larger than life figures but they really are people <laughs> as well you know it sounds yeah, absolutely, right or silly to say but but they really are you know and the fact that you just had a normal conversation with them amazing all right, so jumping ahead here, um, we talked a little about this before we were recording, but you were um, you were climbing a number of years later, and if I'm skipping too far ahead, tell me, because I know there's some buildup here, but you were with a friend, and, and this is a tragedy, but you also described this uh, in a couple of articles as a, as a real um, you know, kind of fork moment for you, um, and this was in New Zealand, I believe. Tell us a little bit about this.
0: Yeah, so um, certainly after that period of time in Nepal and India, um, up until then rock climbing had been, you know, my main focus and and I I, I was thinking more about the big mountains after that period of time and, and wanting to explore in the Himalayas and I was given the opportunity um, a few years later to actually be the expedition doctor for a large Australian group of climbers heading to climb Shishapangma, one of the big mountains, in, or the 13th highest mountain in the world actually, one of the 8,000 metre peaks in um in Tibet, uh, of all places, and uh, and that w- that was an incredible expedition. Um, many of us were successful to climb to the central summit of Shishapangma, um, and so as, spending time in the mountains in terms of snow and ice, you know, because compared to just say the rock rocky routes of the Sierras, that that type of thing became uh, something I was interested in spending more time doing, and. Um, new zealand is is you know just such a it's a wonderful country uh, and incredible opportunities there for climbing in the southern Alps the southern alps though there are a mountain range that deserves a lot of respect there's a lot of loose rock um, conditions need to be good and I went there uh, in two thousand the end of uh, two thousand two thousand one one of those years um, I went there with a friend of mine justin um, we went to we only had sort of a week and a bit to to climb, and towards the end of our time, we chose to go and climb what's called the low peak of Mount Cook, or Aoraki, as it should be called, the the Māori um, the name for the mountain. And yeah, we we made some we made some poor decisions um, collectively, and uh, we as we were descending the mountain. Um, we had a we had an anchor the the anchor that we were using to abseil or repel failed um it didn't fail when i was using it but it failed when justin was using it and he ended up falling um past me on the slope and and ended up in a crevasse and and was significantly injured uh took a while for me to get helicopter rescue to the area and unfortunately he was non-responsive when they retrieved him from the crevasse which was incredible that they were even able to do that and he died in Christchurch Hospital later that night, unfortunately. So it was a, to be the only witness and and to be the only, you know, to, to, to be part of something like that is obviously quite significant. Um, and at the time it was devastating, but within a couple of days, I was back at work in the emergency room in Sydney, not as if nothing had happened, but, you know, without much sort of, um, yeah, well, certainly without any debriefing, let's put it that way. So, sure. and that you know it's, it's easy to talk well uh, that there's the potential there to talk about that as being a moment that changed my life I don't think that's quite correct at all but I think it's solidified a sense that you that that life is for just taking opportunities and exploring opportunities and not worrying too much about the consequences of getting it wrong in terms of but by, by that, I mean, you know, making decisions to go in one direction or whatever, and, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just, t- I'm not, I'm not going to stick to just a normal path when there's so many things that I'd like to explore. And you never know when it's going to end. I think that's probably, you know, again, it didn't, that wasn't, not, wasn't, that wasn't a moment where that just came to me, but it solidified yeah. what I was already thinking.
2: Did it, uh, I mean, do you think it affected your confidence? I mean, how long, you went back to work, but how long was it before you went climbing again?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I had an expedition to a mountain called Manaslu already planned at that time. It was within a year or a year and a half, I think. Um, And that was a small Australian group expedition. uh, And I did continue with that. And, um, yeah, it it was a good expedition. We we did reach the summit. Um, We had a small group that were cohesive and did well together, but it possibly never felt... Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm confident isn't quite the word, but I my level of anxiety about being in the mountains probably just slowly slowly continue to increase from there. Um, and you, know, you don't have to spend much time as a climber of any type to to, to become aware of the, the significant number of injuries and deaths that occur because it's, yeah. a, it's a risky activity. Um, and I think for me, my wife, Sabina is a very good rock climber. I introduced her to climbing. She loves it. And we've spent some incredible times out um, not just at sort of local rock climbing areas where lots of people go and it feels relatively safe because you're clicking bolts, but we've also spent significant time in more remote places on long routes looking for ways to get to a summit and then working out how to descend. And, and, you know, they're much more, that's a much more risky sort of uh, pursuit of climbing. And... And I certainly lost. I certainly have lost confidence in the sense of um, just being more aware of consequences and knowing that I'm climbing with my wife, and that yeah. I don't want that. I don't want that to happen to her. I don't want to be party to. I don't want to be involved in something similar to that that happened with Justin, with her. Uh, so, yeah, we, you know, we still continue climbing. We love it. We just had a road trip in in southern Arizona to a place called Cochise Stronghold. Yeah, And that was a bit remote and we did some long pitches, and we were the only people there. And I think we just, well, we just continue to seek out interesting things to do and we love doing that. So we will always do that, but I'm not really interested in going to big mountains anymore.
2: Well, because this is a medical program too, just to understand a little more about what it means to be an expedition doctor. So sometimes you're a doctor on these, sometimes you're there for other reasons, sometimes it's just for traveling. But if you're, I guess, assigned as a, were hired as an expedition doctor one how does licensing work i mean if you're licensed in australia i guess maybe you're still licensed in the us but if you're going somewhere else what is the what are your responsibilities on these trips and what's your scope of practice and how how is that managed when you're going from country to country
0: yeah again really good question um there's a it's so situation dependent um let me think. Uh, an example could be that, uh, so I, I was the expedition doctor for a ship called, the, and this, this leads into a bit of a story, I was on board a ship called the Academic Shikowsky. Um This was a Russian registered ship run by a New Zealand company that was chartered by an Australian university to travel to Antarctica, which obviously doesn't belong to any country. Um, I'm an Australian registered doctor i don't i do not work as a doctor in the u.s anymore that the year that i was in santa barbara i had a specific visa for a specific year to to work as a doctor in the u.s i'm not board certified in the u.s so i do not work there as a doctor Um, but so we traveled south uh to to antarctica and and one of the questions obviously before taking on the role for of duty of care for a group of people is checking in with your medical insurance company or medical indemnity company and saying hey you guys cover me for my work practice here in australia Uh, This is what I'm going to be doing. And they got back to me and said, well, who's the ship registered to? And I said, it's registered. It's Russian registered. Uh, And they said, oh, well, we're not going to cover you. Um, And if there'd been any US citizens on board, they also wouldn't have covered me. So we're talking a little bit differently to your question about registration. Registration has its own um, parameters. But then, of course, there's the whole issue of being covered if something was was to go wrong from a medical care perspective. So you've got that side of things as well. But um, cut long story short, I still went on the trip. I mean, okay, I'm not covered. What are my risks? Um, they're not high. Am I prepared to do this? What, what What are the benefits for me to be involved in this expedition? So, I, you know, as an individual, I made the decision to 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 go. Oh, and yeah. Anyway, um, and and interestingly, for that particular trip, we ended up we went down south, uh, and it was it was. It was something that actually was in the news quite a bit at the time. We we ended up being, our ship actually got stuck in the ice. So we were down there um, for two weeks over Christmas and New Year. And there was quite a bit of worldwide publicity about the fact that this group of climate scientists had, had gone down to do some science and studies and things, um, you know, looking into uh, all sorts of aspects of Antarctic um, bioscience and environmental science. And and turns out that, well, you know, how on earth could the world be warming if these guys, this group of guys got, and girls got stuck in a, you know, stuck in the ice as it formed up around them, which of course is not, not at all. The the full story doesn't explain
2: anything, but- um, Nobody wants the whole full story. They just want the sunlight. So that's why debate about this issue for some unknown reason, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so so that
0: was quite the journey, you know, and and interestingly from a photographic perspective for me, that um, was a little bit of a, I think to use the, the term breakout is perhaps overstating it a bit, but certainly the images I was shooting got picked up widely around the world because suddenly I was the only person that could, you know, give media um, photographic, the, the photo, sto- the photo essay, the photo story of what was going on down there. Um, and that was kind oh. of fun. So Nat Geo published some stuff online that told the story and um, the very and I got, I ended up sort of, you know, while I was down in Antarctica, I was getting emails from various places and I ended up signing on for a day rate, you know, sending sending in images to, um associated press and and telling the story of our of what was going on down there so that oh, was cool. that was kind so of yeah. fun yeah it was kind of fun and kind of interesting as a photographer too so to uh, so what spot. year was that
2: Are We talking about here
0: uh that was 2013 14
2: so how long had you been well i mean you started you know taking photos back in, in med school but um getting very serious about it as a as a pursuit how long had you been doing it you know at that point
0: yeah i i, I I shot photos a bit in that year off in med school, but then for the rest of medical school, I did very little. And it wasn't really until I started rock climbing um, and started shooting slide film or transparency film that I started getting super excited about photography again. And I, I, after that period, I took 50 rolls of slide film with me to India and Nepal. And when I came back from those trips, I had just enough vaguely okay images that the Lonely Planet, image library took me on as a contributor and so that gave me a bit of a goal and a bit of a purpose and a bit of an idea a lot you know like oh you know they published some of my photos in the trekking guides in nepal for lonely planet you know which felt like a big deal at the time yeah. and so and so i just started to shoot very much you know with a bit of a commercial intent The, you know I, I, yeah it's, it's great to take good photos but there's no point just having slides in a drawer at home. Hopefully they're, they're out there somewhere being seen or being used. And so that gave me a purpose for shooting. And, um, and then on expeditions, particularly once digital came along and everything became more immediate and even creativity as for all of us has just increased exponentially once you can get immediate feedback on what you've just shot, you know. So certainly in the digital era, um, I started shooting much more seriously, contributing a lot more to stock libraries looking for opportunities to maybe do an assignment here or there. Um and then something like that, obviously, yeah, you know, to, to have images get picked up and used widely um, was exciting and, and again just gave me more impetus for shooting. And then bit by bit I guess feeling that I was getting better and more professional in my photography, that gave me confidence to, you know, speak with people that I'd met, let's say with limbblade expeditions as part of a I actually to to just tell this story briefly I I ended up the whole connection with being with getting on board um, expedition ships as a photo instructor is that I went to Antarctica to teach expedition and wilderness medicine to a small group of doctors you know kind of going down on a little going down on a little mini conference to Antarctica they had I guess um, uh, you know contracted out that little mini conference to to be on board the ship I was brought on as the as the the teacher the, the lecturer um, this is this was for a British company. and uh, obviously and I delivered my education, but really, but, but for me, obviously I was in Antarctica I had been to Antarctica before, so that wasn't the you know that wasn't the significant part of it, but it was more just that I got to meet all of the naturalists and the photo staff working the Inlet expeditions, and just kind of was super impressed by them and made a couple of friends uh, from that group and stayed in touch. and then I thought, you know, this is something that I could do. I'm, I could. I'm shooting well enough and I enjoy being around people well enough. And I, um, I, you know, I think I can do this job. So essentially that's how I ended up working for Lindblad expeditions through getting to meet some people on a trip that I was not there as a photo instructor at all. Not not, not there for photography specifically, but actually working as a doctor. So that was
2: kind of cool. A right, quick off the wall question. I could Google this, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. Do you get your passport stamped when you go to Antarctica? Are you actually processed or because it's not really a country? How does that work?
0: Yeah, no, there's no one. There's no one to, start to stamp your passport in in Antarctica. So you don't generally get no. You don't get it. Stamped.
2: Like a rabbit on the moon, you know. They just <laughs>
1: you're just there. <laughs> no customs. Yeah.
0: It's not as if we're going to the South Pole station. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if there is the the means at, at the South at you know because there's quite a bit of infrastructure at the South Pole. so Believe it or not, it wouldn't surprise me if you if you managed to land there to get something stamped. But ninety percent of of not more. A um, percent of trips, uh, particularly tourist-based trips to Antarctica, go to the Antarctic Peninsula. So, um, you know, you, you sort of you're not you, you're there for the nature and the landscape and the ice and the the animals. Um, and there's no real yeah. There's no entry port. Let's put it that way. So, yeah,
2: you know, if you're strictly there as a physician, say, what kind of equipment do you usually have? What what do you expect to be able to treat? You know, say going to Antarctica on a ship and what's available to you. Yeah,
0: again, really good question. Um, I've been to Antarctica a number of times, either as a photographer or, or as an expedition doctor on board a ship, and it, it does vary a bit from ship to ship. Um, it's, in terms of what can you do, I mean, um, the, the, equip, the, the, the medical room on a standard expedition ship is very basic. The equipment is very basic. You, you don't have anything like uh, you know, assisted ventilation or anything like that it's all about stabilization if you are unlucky enough to you know if somebody slipped and fell and and cracked their head and had a, a cerebral bleed or something like that you would be you're not you're not going to be able to sort them out to the extent that you would at home at all um, you are going to be in a stabilization situation uh and an evacuation situation and the 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 biggest thing that an expedition doctor brings or or, or a doctor who's used to being in remote places with less gear than normal the biggest thing they bring to these situations is the ability to know the difference between this is significant we need to do something about this now or this is someone who is having an anxiety attack and their shortness of breath is related to that and no we don't have to turn the ship around now we can do this and this and this does that make sense and so it's it's very much about context right. and it's very much about understanding the difference between this is something we need to sort or this is not and of course there's obviously the big there's that middle ground as well where I, I make it I make it sound you know like it's black and white because it's not. Yeah. Um, and I, look, a really and a really good example of though of the differences would be that I've also worked on a private uh, ship, a large private ship, the name of which doesn't need to be mentioned specifically. But um, we went to Antarctica and we had and I was employed specifically as an expedition doctor. There was already another doctor on board the ship full time anyway, but I was added. And I was really added to be able to give that sort of context to the environment. And to cut a long story short, we had an elderly gentleman with a, a, a tachyarrhythmia, awake and conscious, um, who who deteriorated quickly, or oh, well, so to, to give the context, I guess, it, is that this happened in the middle of the night, the, the ship's full-time doctor was contacted initially. This gentleman, uh, because of technology and the fact the ship had Wi-Fi. So we're, we were five days sail south of, of Tasmania, heading to the Ross Sea in Antarctica. So we're in the middle of the Southern Ocean. There is no helicopter, no plane. Nothing's going to come to this ship to help you. And um, this gentleman uh, was on his mobile phone using Skype to talk to his cardiologist in London, <laughs> who started to direct <laughs> what needed to be given to him for his arrhythmia to the ship's doctor. And it's quite reasonable of course if if the patient was on the phone for the cardiologist it would be kind of i mean i'd be happy to talk to his cardiologist and say hey tell me about this guy what's the, what's his history this is what i see what's going on you know i'm very happy to take your advice anyway cut a long story short they gave him some IBM medication which actually made the whole situation worse um he needed to be cardioverted and um which is something that, by the way, you know, so this was a, this is a private ship, which actually does have a pseudo ICU set up on board. So now you've got all this capability, except that you're still five days sail south. Right. You know, it's great to have capability, but, but then you need to manage it over a prolonged period of time if you have a sick patient. Um, anyway, um, eventually I did get cold, which I hadn't been initially and came down to the room where they had now decided that this gentleman was having an MI and that uh, I would say unfortunately they actually did have thrombolysis on board I say unfortunately because they were just about to thrombolyze this guy in the middle of the southern ocean and yet his ECG was not extremely abnormal he was in no he had no chest pain and was well perfused and looking fine you know all that stuff and the simple thing you do in that sort of situation is just say stop just just stop step back rethink this Then I did get on the phone to the cardiologist uh, and one of the very nice guy, but one of the very first things he said to me was, where are you guys again? (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that part of the context, that part of the story, the most important part of the story hadn't got through to this to to him yet. Despite this had been going on for now two or three hours. Um, So I don't know. I think, I think that's, that's the best story I can give these days for, for, the, for the idea of being an expedition doctor. It's certainly, not about, it's certainly not about, oh, wow, I have all the skills in the world to treat somebody for every possibility in a remote environment. It's actually much more about I have every ability in the world to say stop and, and let's just think about this and let's understand where we are and what our options are. And, and so much of that is about preparation and is, is about prevention and preparation, much, much more so than treatment and sorting something out.
1: Did you get that context from your emergency room experience, or did you get that context from doing expeditions? Do you think? Um, I
0: think a bit of both, and I think I think for me also that those early years of uh, of doing local work, of working in in um, smaller emergency rooms in more regional parts of Australia, where you know there isn't an ICU consultant who's going to come down and talk to you and help you out or take the patient or uh, and i can't even think of specific scenarios all i can think is that just as a young person i just became aware that that it, I, one of the things i became aware of early on is that it's okay not to know everything and it but that and it's also, and it's okay to say that you don't know um and it's also moderately rare that that everything has to that everything depends on what you do in the next 5 seconds because it usually doesn't it just depends on right. the decisions you make and seeking out the best form of help you can get usually from other people not from me Right. Um, if that makes sense, yeah. And then maybe on expeditions as well and, and understanding it's a, yeah, and, and just understanding the remoteness of places and, and how that affects and, and the environment, you know, so critical to so many things.
1: Yeah, this, this is going to be maybe a little bit glib, a transition, but that kind of decision-making, you see that in your photography. I'm looking on um, your website and just looking at these magnificent series and it's just the way you sort of catch that moment in time and you 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 see the photograph and you and you can tell the context that tells the whole story um do you do you feel that when you're taking the picture like you're you're about to take a picture and you say you know that doesn't really tell a story i should just step back and wait for the better picture or
0: yeah i no one's ever put that to me before i think there's a i think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, uh, I, I I do know that in the pre digital era, um, I think the, my medical brain did never. I wasn't very creative as a photographer um, with film because I wasn't. Well, I probably wasn't prepared to spend money on lots of slide film. Um, but I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared to press the shutter button unless I thought everything was just right,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: is not. A, which is not a good pathway to creativity in photography. <laughs> 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 At all, because many of the best photos are taken, or actually, I where not everything's not just right. And and I would say that for me as a photographer, one of my one of the one of the less useful aspects of things is that I still tend to think a bit too clinically, and and that I want everything to look or you know to marry up properly, which is not 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 true. But yeah, I think the answer to your question is right. I, I think. Um, I'm always trying to look at the big picture and, I'm, and I spend a lot of time looking around the edges of the frame to see what I don't want to have in an image as compared to what I do want to have in an image. But, but yeah, there's a lot of thought to it as, as there is, I think, for any good photographer. There's a lot of thought to what goes on. It's, it's very rarely just a matter of, you know, of holding it, just quickly picking up the camera to your eye and taking a picture.
2: All right, here's a selfish question here, Andrew. So a lot of us are stuck in the house right now. I've actually thought this week of maybe getting the camera out a little bit and just, you know, just exploring a little bit because we're, you know, kind of limited what we can do right now, with the state of the affairs in the world. Mm. If I know we could probably spend another couple hours on this, but for the novices <laughs> like us, especially those of us who use our cell phones all the time, including taking pictures of our kids in action, what are the the big mistakes many of us make that are, you know, low hanging fruit, the things that we could correct and, and improve on with this? So I've got, you know, I've got an SLR c- camera, but I also have, you know, an iPhone, and those are my tools. Mm-hmm. Um, just some you know some some little guidance there.
0: Well, I think the first thing is that that certainly phone cameras are fantastic in in, in everything that they do um, and that, that they are our go-to tools for most for much of the photography I mean I use mine a lot um, they still only do they still often only do well when the light's quite good that's that's one of the first things with phone cameras then there are many times when our eyes see, a lot of detail in shadows and a lot of detail in highlights at the same time in the same scene. And you, your phone camera, you're gonna often have to make a decision as to which part of the scene is really important. Is it is it that dark interior or is it the light exterior of you know, what you're looking at? So, I don't know, so you know, make, make some decisions about where the subject of interest really lies. And then um, often it, a, a point to make there might be wherever that subject of interest lies, walk towards it, get closer to it. T- you know, make it the center of what it is that you want to tell the story rather than just think you have to include the whole scene. Um, and I think in terms of being s- stuck inside or restricted as we are all today, tell the story of what it is to feel like that in some way. And and I say feel deliberately in the sense that sometimes the best photos give a sense of feeling rather than just uh, showing a subject or, you know, being you know, th- think about being less literal and, and more creative and 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 only just focus on the stuff that interests you. Whatever it is that interests you is going to get you passionate about photography. You're not you're not taking pictures for other people, you're taking pictures for yourself. And if you want to tell a story of this time where you were stuck inside or where you were looking at the same scene out the window, you you know, you can I've done a couple of uh, little photo projects where I have had the same scene um, every day out the window, but the light is constantly changing. So you can, you can tell that, you know, you can put a time lapse together of, diff- of, of the shadows and light moving outside over exactly the same scene that will give you a sense of the passing of days or something like that. I mean, that, I'm yeah. kind of thinking of that almost just off the top of my head, but I just, I'm, I'm harking back to when I've done something similar, um, in the past. There, there's something that there's a, there's a, a little video on my website, um, Oh gosh, I should check that it's still there. I'm pretty sure it is still there because I just recently revamped my website where I had I had a, a month staying at a mate's house in Tasmania in Hobart with an incredible view to uh, Mount Wellington or Kunanyi. Um, and obviously the light is constantly changing over this mountain. The clouds were changing and I just took a photo every half an hour or every hour um, mm-hmm. of that scene. And then at the end of a month, I sort of deconstructed it so that I only had 20 photos, but the... Each photo had to come from a half hour point or an hour point during the course of that month, if that makes sense. So they're all from different yeah. days, but it, but it records that mountain from sort of 5.30, 6.00 in the morning through to 5.00 p.m. using different days. Anyway, you have to go to the website and have a look oh, yeah. at Thanks, I appreciate it. that. Yeah. It's just kind of a fun little project.
1: Yeah. All right, we're oh. in our
2: last few. Go ahead,
1: Keith. I was just going to say, Colin, you realize that was a little bit like asking the Dalai Lama how, what, yeah, how what's to that? explain it's enlightenment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good answer. <laughs> well, uh, Andrew, we're in the last few minutes here. So um, I read somewhere you don't like it when people say you have the dream job. So I won't say you have the dream job. But, <laughs> but you do. Let's be honest. Um, you know, there's going to be people, doctors, nurses, people listening right now saying, man, that sounds pretty good. I like that setup. Um this is another bigger question but maybe we can condense it a little bit how realistic if, if somebody wanted to say spend part of the year working as a physician part of the year doing something else and it could not even just travel or expedition medicine or mm-hmm, photography just, maybe it's just another passion they have right mm-hmm. what would be your advice to them and how possible is it do you think how realistic is it to do that yeah well,
0: the glib answer is you just you never sign a contract with anyone right i mean how do you get out? I mean, how can you do that if you've signed up to some facility or some place or, or or some business as a doctor and, and agreed to work X number of days a, a, a week for however long? I mean, unless you've got some, unless we talk about things like long service leave and it's very different in Australia to America in terms of how much time you have off. But, uh, and again, and this of course, but this then go, gets linked in different directions. You know, How many portions do you need in the garage? How big a house do you need? How many kids do you want? Do you have a partner who also wants to travel and explore the same passions that you have? So it's a bigger question than that. I've been very lucky to, you know, we tried to have kids. We, we weren't able to have children. That, that's just the way it was. And, and we moved on from that. Um, that, that. That gives us freedom. We have a small house that, well, you know, the bank has our small house. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> we, we, we don't spend much money other than on food and travel. And that that gives us freedom, right? And and then I'm very lucky to work in a medical system here in Australia where I hopefully can be useful in a very um, casual way. Casual is not the right word, but uh, you know, I, 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 there is an emergency room that, that I work at that does its rota, uh, you know, a month ahead. And if I can do things like work Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings and Easter and Christmas and school holidays, none of which bothers me. Um, then they're happy to have me around knowing full well that every now and again i'm going to say hey i'm gone for two or three months
2: yeah that and, makes a lot of sense yeah.
0: and then i'm useful to them but um uh and, and you know you know what i mean so they'll put up with they'll potentially put up with me being around as long of course as long as when i do turn up i work hard and that's right. and, and you know get along with people and uh, and people are happy to see me come through the door because they know oh well here's here's a guy who's turning up to work that's going to be helping us not hindering us and then it all flows through from there. Just checking
2: sense. the list here. No contract. no. Contract. <laughs> That's right. Um, more wealth, the ability to work weekends and uh, holidays <laughs> are needed and you can totally make this happen. <laughs> That's right. It's kind of yeah. like that. It's
0: all, you know, just work out, work out where, 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 what things you can do to make it
1: happen. It can happen.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, we are at the hour, unfortunately. Uh, but Andrew, Andrew, uh, Man, that was really fun. Thanks, Keith. Go ahead,
1: Colin. Yeah, I do have one question, and and um, hopefully this can be a quickie. What is your uh, your dream shoot at this point? If you could, uh, if you could travel, if when everything, all restrictions and money and time and everything were not an uh, 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 obstacle, where would you go? What would you shoot?
0: Uh, look, I, I don't think I have any absolute destinations I have to go to. <clears throat> um, I'm particularly interested in wildlife these days, but I'd also, I'd actually like to be involved in some sort of collaborative project where I'm working with other photographers on on, on a project that has a bigger meaning than just me getting good photos. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Um, if that makes sense, yeah, it's so mm-hmm. nothing yeah. very specific, more just to be involved, to be useful, to be helpful, um, to, to, and to work with others w- with a bigger goal than just saying, hey, we've got great pictures. Tell a story that means something to others um, and that people yeah, want to you know, learn from.
1: Right.
2: Andrew, uh, to finish things up, tell everybody here, because we're going to put some links up to this. And this is when everybody absolutely have to look at this, because we can't describe these photos. We're not, I'm, I'm not. Maybe talent, Keith's talented enough as a writer, I'm not. But uh, they're, they're incredibly beautiful. But tell uh, tell everybody where they can find out more about you, Andrew, and take a look at some of your work.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, so my website, my, my website is uh, Footloose Photography, and that's photography spelled with an F. Uh, there are some links on there um, at the about page where you can like, you know, read some online interviews, I guess, a bit about what I've been up to over the years. Um, and then that, that terrible place, social media, uh, is also just uh, at footloose photography, uh, on Instagram or Facebook
2: as well. Awesome. We'll get those up as we always do on the website and Andrew really, um, thanks again. I mean, uh, this is just what I was hoping for. And, uh, Hopefully, something a little bit of all of us need. You know, if we can't get outside, our house is too far. We can kind uh, of live yeah. vicariously for an hour here. It's a lot of fun. Yeah,
0: it's it's all day by day at the moment. This is going to end. We just have to. We need to hang in there day by day and, yeah. and work it out. That's exactly
2: right. But everybody, that's uh, Dr. Andrew Peacock. And uh, Andrew, thanks again for joining us. And everybody, whenever, wherever you're listening to us. Thanks
0: for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.